Welcome to the Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, we chatted with a comic about going clean, heard from a female comic book artist about her craft, and learned about an innovative effort to reuse shipping containers to create community spaces. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for December 14th, 2018. Radio Free chatted with Maggie Hughes, a comedian and booker from our Beverly neighborhood. Hughes discussed the pleasures and perils of stand-up, the difficulty of making your material clean, and why comedy matters today. John Daly and Jamie Trecker present Chicago's Tastemakers every Tuesday, drive time. We're talking with Maggie Hughes DiPaolo. We're talking about stand-up comedy and a showcase that happens in Beverly. Um, And I was talking a little bit about uh, the art, I guess, the ups and downs, the, the time in between the laugh or the awkward moments that you, there might not be a laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I, I saw in the, in the showcase that we used to do here was um, kind of the artful, purposeful silence, telling a joke that's maybe off color, purposely um, creating silence and then and then kind of triumphantly coming back. Uh, do you kind of have those arcs in your in your show i personally that is not my style of humor but it is a very popular style and i will tell you i think it's an absolute art for people that can do that and um there's comedian paul farver he's actually on wjn radio uh he's been doing it a number of years he's very good at that i was actually watching him at this mic last night his ability to not say anything like his material, I was even telling him, is not that great. But the way he says it, his pause, his stance, and the way he delivers to the audience is awesome. Um, and he gets a laugh every time. So you're running a showcase. Who are some of the folks that you've, I guess, found and, and brought out um, to your show? Yeah. So uh, in the last six shows, we've had some awesome, awesome comedians. Um, headliners, we had Jeannie Dugan. We had Paul Farver. We recently had uh, Matty Ryan, who's actually a Beverly native. Um, he's kicking butt. These are these are nationally touring comedians. Um, Pat McGann, who uh, is also from Beverly, stopped in the last couple shows um, just to pop in and do some material. And then coming up this year, um, we have Carly Kane, we have Chris Higgins, and um, we have a couple other headliners. I can't remember their names off the top of my head, but our headliners are going to be people that are touring in multiple cities that have been doing it at least five years. Are there folks from Beverly that uh, have kind of gone before or that you've been able to uh, talk with on this? Pat McGann is one of them for sure. So he's actually, I I should credit him, um, Mary-Kate Beck, who is my partner in the the showcase, uh, who's from Beverly, who also works with me during the day. She met with Pat, and he's the one who actually said, hey, you guys should do a show on the South Side. So, yes, Pat's been a great mentor. He came to the second-to-last show and gave us some advice on the room and just kind of how to set up chairs and sound. But um, him and Maddie Ryan have both been awesome. They're both from Beverly. Pat's been on the show, hasn't he? No, uh, you're thinking about uh, Danny Bryce, Pat oh, Bryce's uh, Pat brother. Bryce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, did a, they did a comedy show and, and um, uh, tribute to – to Pat Bryce at uh, Comiskey. You're correct. And uh, I forget who was there. Kyle Kinane and a bunch of other folks. I think so. And then Jeannie Dugan actually is from the neighborhood too. I want to say Jeannie grew up in Bridgeport. Um, she's awesome. So she's a, re- I shouldn't say retired, but she's been a teacher up until last year and hmm. then decided to do comedy full time. 
Um, she was our headliner. I think she's the headliner for our second show. She's great. What can I? This is a strange thing. I mean, comedy has always struck me as um, a very um, masochistic thing to do. And I say, you know, I played in bands. I'm, I'm a drummer, and I play around. I've, I've stood in front of big crowds. But comedy seems something that you're very naked. You're trying to make other people laugh, which is very different than entertaining someone with a song or a story or playing an instrument. Um, I've always felt that doing that, there's there's not a lot of distance between you and the audience. And I, I guess I just would like to delve into a little bit. I mean, why did you decide to do this in the first place? And what is it about this that you you enjoy? So I've always been a storyteller. And I found that so stand up as a way to tell your story um kind of in your in your own words to make people laugh um so if you knew me over the last 10 years you know I'm a storyteller by heart so if you were if we were out having a few drinks I'm typically somebody that's going to take over a conversation with something funny that happened um and I tend to be good at explaining it in a way that's quick relevant and gets to the point so um I found that stand-up versus improv, which people confuse often, is a way to do that mm-hmm. um, in a very nerve-wracking, <laughs> yeah. stressful manner. Um, but it's fun to do. I mean, to, to take something that's happened to you. So I will say this. When I first started, I thought about all these things that I was going to tell, that I was going to do stand-up about. And you realize none of that is even relevant. And it has to be kind of stuff that's relevant to you now. So I have hilarious stories about my 20s. They're probably not going to make a lot of sense to do a bit about it now. I can try to bring it into my storytelling, but people want to know about who I am now, which is married in my late 30s, you know, working on these three things. So, um, yeah. And that's really what you mine is your life right now for, for that. Yeah, and that's what most – like any teacher I've worked with or mentor has said, talk about what you're going through now. Um, take something that, you know, that's in your life – an emotion, a thing, how it makes you feel, and tell the story. Um, try not to do too much about, like, when I was in college, I drank so much, this happened. It's not going to be relevant to the crowd. You're not going to – it won't feel natural. Um, and it's it's worked. It's helped a lot. Who are some of the people that you, you looked up to? I mean, were they – I, I say this because it's it's something of a more recent phenomenon that we've seen more women get into stand-up comedy. There, for a long time, was something of a glass ceiling. You count the number of successful female comics kind of on your hand, and that's changing for the for the better. I think yeah. we're now seeing a real wave of of female comics who are now being, I think, finally uh, critically enjoyed at the same level that male comics were traditionally yeah. given. You, know, you look at Kate McKinnon and her success, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's a real game changer, frankly, for a lot of people. Were there people you looked up to when, when you were starting out and you said, you know, I really want to be, you know, uh, whoever it was, you know? Yeah. Um, absolutely. I think, um, and I say these names like early version of these people, but like Chelsea Handler I thought was hysterical. Um she has her issues now, but she was great. I mean, she was ballsy and audacious and told people like it is. And um, Amy Schumer, previous Amy Schumer, I think was awesome. Um, I'm a big fan of Ellen. She's a clean comic, but she's incredibly impressive. Now that I know a little bit more about the art, mm-hmm. I, I'm more in 
inclined to go back and watch people to like pick up on kind of their style and what they do. Um, I like a lot of male comics too, though, I won't lie. Sebastian Maniscalco is one of my favorites. Bill Burr, Louis C.K., the previous. Um, That's an interesting one you bring up. Louis C.K. is is somebody that uh, had wide respect. And for people that don't know, obviously, he was brought down by um, a fairly lurid series of uh, revelations, let's say. Did, right. did that change your, your view of him or his comedy? It didn't. I, you've got to be able to separate the two, right? I think that's why... I personally don't love Amy Schumer now, but I won't say for a second she's not awesome at stand-up. You know, I, I, I separate the two. I think, um, personally speaking, that's that's my take, right? Um, Lucy Kay is incredibly talented and has a very unique way of doing things. Um, so, no, I don't. It's it's kind of hard to do that in entertainment. Everybody's got skeletons. Skeletons in the closet, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. And you work clean, mainly. I am. My, my my material. <clears throat> yeah, it's funny. I it's it, it took me um, a couple times of trying some things that weren't clean to realize I'm clean. Yeah. <laughs> Just the comfort level, uh, one being my parents being in the audience. Um, it, but they're you know, they were like, we don't care. It's more just what you're comfortable doing, which is, again, back to what this teacher told me is like, don't try to break too out, far out of who you are in the moment because you'll feel more genuine doing it. So um, maybe 10 years ago I might have talked about dating and my sex life and that kind of stuff, but it's not relevant now. And, yeah, I'm a clean comic. I'll say can, that. can you talk about your sex life in a clean way? Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, There's just different ways of approaching the story, right? right. Um, but, Is it uh, easier or harder to do it that way? It's easier. Personally, I think that as I'm watching other comedians, and I, I've really loved being a booker. I think um, it's helping me figure out who I want to be in my own art. But I, I love assessing the talent, too, because there's so many different styles. But um, I find that people who are clean are more impressive. I mean, I watch Ellen now. If you go back and look at some of her stuff, to have an hour special, multiple hour specials, and not swear and make people, like – keel over guys girls all ages is so impressive to me to not even say the f word spoke to Catherine Darnstadt, architect and founder of Boombox. Boombox produces community spaces made out of shipping containers, and Darnstadt talked about recycling, reuse, and the power of public spaces. Texting Chicago with Melanie Adcock airs every Friday at 1 p.m. And our, our first guest on our show today is Catherine Darnstadt. She is the founder of Leighton Design and uh, one of Chicago's first pop-up storefronts made of a shipping container called Boombox. 
Catherine, welcome to the show. We are so glad to have you here with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. And uh, well, to, to start us off here, the, the Boombox Project was born in the intersection of where architecture and community development meet. So I was wondering if you could tell us about that intersection and what it means for you. Absolutely. I think that's a great opening question. Always a, you know, nice and tiny, tidy way to wrap up a huge idea. Um, I think we have to take a step back and look at and think about how latent design and architecture firm and boombox um, a micro retail pop up actually work together and um, our business is almost like a turducken. So if you think about this, latent design as the architecture for firm is the turkey part. Um, we have a construction company within that. That's the duck part. And then the chicken, which is the product of Boombox, came out of all of these amazing intersections and projects and um, problems that we heard as architects that are existing within our built environment. And we've heard consistently over the decade of the architecture firm working with community groups on commercial corridor revitalization or vacant lot revitalization or just thinking about what do we do within communities of color where I grew up, where our friends live, where our clients live and how do we actually support them and try to reverse and change years and decades of strategic disinvestment. And we kept hearing some of the same goals that people wanted to have. You know, how do we, we what do we do about vacant storefronts and lots? Um, how do we support our small businesses? And then also, how do we revitalize commercial corridors? But as architects, we weren't giving affordable solutions. And, you know, you make a plan, you put it in a book, and you put it on a shelf, and that just wasn't doing it. And we had the, um, we saw an opportunity maybe in about 2013, 2014, um, the city of Chicago put out an RFP that said designers, activists, you know, individuals come and present ideas on how do we activate public spaces across the city. But the RFP was really written in a way that was inviting advertisers to the spaces instead of um, community-driven solutions. And so we and a team of people um, that Leighton Design led um, kind of made a protest um, proposal and, and said, instead of walking by public spaces in our neighborhoods and seeing all of a sudden advertising signs or things like that, can we actually make space and make equitable space and bring small businesses, arts and culture to them? And mm -hmm. so Boombox was an idea we were working on for a while, and we inserted that into our proposal and and sent it into the ether of City Hall and, you know, just kind of hope for the best. Uh, about a year later, we heard back that we had won. Um, they had selected our proposal and the city asked and said, we, you know, we love this idea. We would love to do it. Um, what do we need to do? And we kind of just looked at them and said, well, basically everything about it is illegal. It's too small of a space. It's too short term. There isn't such a thing as pop-up permits in the city. And, you know, they're pretty much everything we want to do needs new legislation. And we went through a year of policy work to make the first boombox, which is in Wicker Park, um, exist. So 2015, that opened. And in that first year, it was open. We had 23 unique vendors. So almost a vendor every two weeks. Mm -hmm. Out of that, you have 19 of them were women of color, just like myself. And since then, we've had 60 vendors in that space alone go through it. So Every type of small business you can imagine, arts and culture. We've had concerts. Um, we've, you know, had, um, you know, um, so many things um, mm -hmm. out of there. And mind you, it's 150 square feet. 
you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so when people talk about like, oh, we need these massive, massive developments to start to change corners, corridors and communities. It's like, no, we can actually really, you know, have big plans, but do it through small spaces. And we could kind of slowly scaffold and incrementally change what our neighborhoods can look like. And so we show that as an example through Boombox. And we are so incredibly fortunate that this idea found a home and mm-hmm. then like slowly had a scope creep over several years that now is five locations, one market, other cities across the Midwest as we're growing because that um, audience of small businesses, uh, creative mm-hmm. entrepreneurs, artists crave that type of space. And that's now starting to get to a solution of making affordable space and bringing back um support for our communities in a really meaningful way. Mm, yeah, that's that's a lot. See, I knew we probably, you know, the, the, we, we could just have that one question. <laughs> that's <laughs> yes, the, we the did first talk question. About that. So, um, but and I know as an architect and, and yourself and, and um, you know, so many different materials, uh, I wanted to hear from you. What What's appealing to you about these shipping containers? I know there's what the, the tiny house movement, mm-hmm. a lot of people are using them. What What is it for, for you? Um, I, I wanted to hear your, your thoughts on that. That's a great question. And honestly, with the first one, there's almost nothing appealing about shipping containers. And I went using that almost kicking and screaming because when we made the first prototype, even though we were working with the city, they said, hey, we'll help you through policy and some of the permits, but you got to pay for the thing yourself. We're like, oh, well, that's unfortunate. We don't have any money. Um, So the reason containers came about is we had um, a design that we had been working through and really trying to finesse all the way down um, to the essence of what it could be. But we also didn't want to just put a box on a site. We wanted to have a, a try to see how much we could elevate the design and make it look unique and special to really showcase and differentiate the the Mm -hmm. people that were using the space. Um, And so it was um, an idea that had always been on the back burner. Could we actually use a container? And we had to seriously explore it. So it was through that exploration of, okay, well, what if we don't think of a container as an aesthetic? What if we think about it as structural steel? And then that started to look at how can we repurpose that in in you know the structural sense and not necessarily the aesthetic sense. Most container structures, you still see the corrugation on it. You know, we also have a lot of containers that are just hanging out on lots in the city of Chicago on construction sites already. So it doesn't necessarily feel like an elevated element. It doesn't feel like an elevated space just like that. Um, So we use that and kind of reverse engineered it and then um, layered our design strategy within that. And then when you go up and you see some of the prototypes, you can't, you don't see the container. Even inside the space, you see only four corners, and it takes a while for people to um, understand that those two, it's the same, and -hmm. that's what we were going for. Ultimately, we wanted to wholly transform what a container could be and what a space could be and really elevate the experience, the design experience, and the functional experience that went in that space. Wow. Well, I'm I'm glad I asked that because that was just so interesting. <laughs> now, now, how is the use of of the the building materials and and the design and everything you just mentioned? How does that impact the types of events that take place there? Um, it's it 
hasn't been a hindrance, honestly. I mean, creative individuals um, and hustlers, business hustlers of all kind could see any type of space and be like, I have an idea. I know what I could do with it. We've had theater performances. I mean, full-on concerts where instead of it being a storefront, it transforms into a stage and it spills out into the adjacent um, parcel of land or onto the plaza in front. Um, we also have found, even in small spaces, when you compare it and say this is about the size of two festival tents, a lot of our businesses are used to already setting up at a street fair or at you know a holiday market or something like that. So they already have the kit of parts to go in it. So all of a sudden they understand, okay, I only need to get one new thing or bring in a little bit more inventory to fill this out. So it's really the appropriate size for many of the businesses and artists that we've worked with because they're already operating their shop essentially out of a couple tables or a couple mm -hmm. tents throughout the year. Oh, well, that's great. More businesses are nomadic than we realize. Mm -hmm. And I think it's part of the ongoing culture of what we really have to understand is not – we are always going to have um, a side hustle passion business. I mean, that's just where our economy is and how people are also growing. You might have your day job and then you have your nine to five and you have your five to nine. So we made a space to allow people to really build their passions in an affordable space in an affordable way. And we just also have businesses who like to be nomadic. You know, mm -hmm. why can't you go to, um, you know, San Francisco for an event or you know, New York for an event. There's no reason that we have to be in a physical retail space all every year, year after year. We can be much more transient. We could be more digital. But you have to have a response to a changing retail environment and really look at the what the businesses at this scale are doing and what they need and re respond appropriately. Absolutely. Well, and it's it's so fascinating to hear, and it one well, and, and to hear you say it, it's like yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's the right scale, you mm -hmm. know. And mm -hmm. it's just I I love it. And so I, you know, one another thing is just how how has it grown in the last year? I mean, there have been a lot of interest in it, and more more spaces. And can you tell us about what it's been like as it's grown? Absolutely. We had Wicker Park opened in. 2015. Inglewood opened in 2016. So after we went through the first iteration, essentially the first boombox pop-up prototype, um, the city was like, hey, now we'll, you know, we get it because they didn't get it. They got it. They got, they thought they got it up until it opened and then they got it, you know, but, um, and then afterwards, like, well, now we want to find ways to support you. And like, here's, we could look at economic development funds, you know, now we see how it ties into this system. So then, because we had no more money, right? We paid for the first thing that was, that was it. Mm -hmm. So when someone's like, why don't we have an extra outlet? I was like, I didn't have any extra money. <laughs> you know, that's just, we, we got what we could pay for. But right. then with Inglewood, we opened Inglewood in 2016. In 2017, we opened Austin and Chatham. This year, we opened Bronzeville and also our first movable market mm. um, of seven shops in the West Loop. Wow. So th that's what's in Chicago currently right now. Um, and then we're also looking at other locations for next year throughout the Midwest as other cities have looked at and said, we have a we have a population like Chicago. We have that same interest of small businesses that we're trying to grow. We saw it not only what you've done from the design piece and fabrication, but also from the policy side. So can you come in and help us shift our village, municipality, city to make that work for us? Oh, wow. And and so so just a quick question here. How long did it take from inception to till now? We started in 2015. 
Is that the right? first one launched in 2015. So that's right. like three three years. All this happened mm-hmm. that you just described in three years. Well, it, that's how long it takes. It do, is. It is how long it. it takes. It's right. A, if someone wants to make a difference like this, it's a what? It's a three-year project. Right. And so we've been growing and building it throughout then. And I think it's interesting because like many of the uh, businesses and vendors that we work with, they have a side project that grows, right? And they get an audience. And we had essentially a side project that was just a building, but then that started to grow. And now we're really looking at how do we create systemic change, right? We have this we have in Chicago where you have vacant land, you have pools of money, but you have interested, essentially, first-time developers, uh, business owners who want to do something about that, community members that want to do something like that about that. Mm-hmm. So why can't we just shift this and make a new development pipeline of acquiring land, helping fund um micro retail or even small spaces for people to tap into. And so that's the next big thing that we're looking at moving forward. Um, We've already taken a lot of risks with the policy, the design, the fabrication. So why not make a new economic development system? Because we're already doing it right now Mm -hmm. for ourselves. Why can't we expand that and really do something about supporting small businesses, small arts organizations, and do something about the vacancies we have in the city and some of the structural inequities we have in the city as well? You hear anything? Nope. All right, how? What's that? Uh Is that Ed's car making all that noise? Yeah, it sounds like his axle's cached. Everything all right? I hit a pothole on Archer, and I blew my tire out. Can't pay for good stuff. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, that's what I get for trying to leave Bridgeport. John, you listening? What are you doing, Kyle? It's cool. He's signaling his friend in Undertown. John, don't even... Listen, I'm sending an SOS beacon to Undertown. You see, when I hit this pole with this wrench, a vibratory pattern will travel through yeah, the earth. Kyle, the... man, stop disturbing the neighborhood. It's the neighborhood that's disturbing, Ed. It's noise, and I want it to no, stop. It's, it's actually a pattern like Morse code. It's you see noise. It? It's noise, but, you know, we could be done with this if you just lend a hand once in a while. Yeah, he's not wrong. All you do is yell at him. He collects cigarette butts. He's a 70-year-old man. I'm so old, though, my back and... You're not selling it, Kyle. You've got to save Undertown, Ed. The very thing holding Bridgeport back is Undertown. Oh, yeah, you want to say this? Come on, Kyle. Say Don't it touch again. my face. Kyle, Ed, say it again. What, what the heck? Look, oh. What the heck is that, man? Is it a body? Is that a head? Can't is it? Work. What? Jeez. This, this is the guy we were signaling. This is psychotic. This stuff happens all the time, Ed. Now, people just don't emerge from a hole in the street. What the heck is going on here? All the gates to Undertown are locked up. Desperate times, Ed. Wait a minute, do I know you? Yeah, you and your ma have been throwing me out of the bar for years. What you learned about what's going down in Undertown? There ain't no time to waste. We gotta get out of Bridgeport. This place is gonna huh? blow. What blow is it, what? What's gonna blow? Gary and IDOT's plan is to level Bridgeport by creating potholes. Then one day, whammy, it's sinkhole city. What the heck for? So glad you asked. Gary's calling it Project Pitport. After Bridgeport is rubble, he's going to form his own sovereign nation on top of it. Undertown actually wants to go topside? Gary does. Uh, But don't nobody in Undertown want to. This is just like the plot 
to Dark Knight Rises. We gotta stop Gary Indiana Jones from destroying Undertown. Wanna flip for it? What, you, what, what the hell are you talking about here, man? What about stopping him from destroying Bridgeport? Ah, uh, Bridgeport's fine, but I wouldn't take a bullet for it. Kyle! Well, technically, by saving Undertown, we're saving Bridgeport. Not totally. That's true. I mean, if we toppled Undertown, then we'd be saving Bridgeport. Right, right. Bridgeport's problem is Undertown, therefore, saving Undertown technically... Whatever it takes to save Bridgeport from total annihilation, do that, Kyle. Yeah, but so what? Right, yeah, absolutely, that's a good point. John... WTF, man? What? You're surprised, Ed? This whole show was your idea. I mean, Ed, are you ready to fight to save the community of the future? Oh, jeez. I suppose if I have to... It'll be like the 1985 cult classic, Goonies. That's what I thought. Yeah, just like Goonies, but where everyone is like sloth. Now that's what I call Ed Marshewski finally getting involved. I can't wait to hear how this ends. Anywho, if you want to get involved, go to lumpinradio.com for more information. But until then, listen to the rest of this programs. This week on The Trump Diaries, the Justice Department accuses Trump of defrauding the voters with an illegal scheme to manipulate the 2016 election. Cohen has the book thrown at him. A Russian national pleads guilty to working as an agent of the Kremlin. The I-word suddenly gains real currency, and more rats bail off a sinking ship. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 685, December 5th. Trump attended the funeral for G.W. Bush. Trump shook hands with the Obamas but did not acknowledge the Clintons or the Carters. Hillary Clinton stared straight ahead. The Trumps also did not participate in the Apostles' Creed or sing the hymns during the funeral. Trump also traveled 250 yards in a limo as part of a motorcade to visit with Bush's son, George W. Bush, across the street. In a major surprise, Robert Mueller recommended that Michael Flynn serve no jail time, saying he provided substantial assistance with the Russia probe. Flynn apparently gave 19 interviews to the investigators, providing details about other criminal investigations. Those details were heavily redacted in Mueller's filings, indicating there is a significant amount more to come. Carbon dioxide emissions reached the highest levels on record, with the USA among the largest emitters of the potent greenhouse gas. Trump is rolling back regulations designed to limit those emissions from cars and smokestacks. Trump declared himself tariff man in a tweet and threatened to hit China with more tariffs if a trade deal he allegedly negotiated during the G20 summit falls apart. That tweet immediately erased 800 points off the Dow Jones average and set global markets into a panic. Analysts have concluded that Trump, in fact, negotiated nothing during the G20. The Republican Congressional Committee was hacked during the midterms with thousands of emails exposed to an unknown entity. The hack was carried out by a foreign agent. The RCC did not notify senior leaders in the GOP until Politico inquired about the hack. And Giuliani blamed Twitter for, quote, invading my text with a disgusting anti-president message after he accidentally created a link to a non-existent domain name. A user, a stand-up comedian in Georgia, noticed that the G20.in domain was unclaimed, so he bought it for $5 and displayed a webpage that read, quote, Donald J. Trump is a traitor to our country. Giuliani claimed that Twitter employees are, quote, committed card-carrying anti-Trumpers and said in all caps, fairness, please. Day 686, December 6th. 
Congress passed a two-week spending bill to extend the government's funding through December 21st. Lawmakers are unwilling to spend money on Trump's wall. He has vowed to shut the government down if $5 billion is not allocated to it, claiming the wall has already, quote, been mostly built. This is false. Canada arrested the CFO of Chinese firm Huawei. Trump was not notified of the pending arrest and her extradition. Meng Wanzhou has been convicted of violating U.S. export and sanctions laws. Huawei has been charged with creating products that contain backdoors for the Chinese government. Huawei phones, for example, are forbidden in U.S. government buildings. Trump said he would loosen rules on carbon emissions for new coal power plants. The proposal would allow new coal plants to emit up to 1,900 pounds of carbon dioxide per megawatt hour of electricity. That's a 500-pound increase. Also, Trump moved to ease restrictions on oil and natural gas drilling that were put in place to protect an endangered species. Trump's rule would limit the sage grouse's protected habitat to 1.8 million acres, down from 11 million. Both moves came days after stark warnings that the climate is rapidly heating. Election officials are examining two cases of election fraud in North Carolina. The North Carolina State Board of Elections and Ethics has refused to certify Republican Mark Harris's 905 vote win over Democrat Dan McCready as a political operative working for the Harris campaign oversaw workers illegally collecting mail-in absentee ballots from voters. Ironically, Harris had claimed that Democratic voter fraud was rampant. North Carolina may call a new election. Maryland and the District of Columbia issued 20 subpoenas, including ones for Trump's financial records related to his D.C. hotel. That lawsuit is the first to go forward under the Constitution's anti-corruption clauses. The Trump Hotel is located in the old post office building, which is leased from the federal government. The lease says that no elected official may hold it. Saudi Arabian lobbyists booked 500 nights at Trump's hotel. Those lobbyists spent more than $270,000. And Trump told aides he isn't worried about the rapidly expanding national debt on his watch because, quote, he won't be here when America has to pay its creditors back. The USA currently owes over $21 trillion. Day 687, December 7th. Federal prosecutors said Trump personally directed an illegal scheme to manipulate the 2016 election. Trump continued to secretly seek to do business in Russia deep into his presidential campaign, even as Russian agents made concerted efforts to influence him. At the same time, Trump ordered hush payments to two women in violation of campaign finance law. The moves made by the Justice Department in the sentencing of Trump's ex-lawyer Michael Cohen make it clear they think Trump defrauded voters and they question the legitimacy of Trump's victory. Trump tweeted a series of angry, error-laden tweets about that investigation, claiming it is biased, full of conflicts of interest, and that Mueller is best friends with leak and lion James Comey. The tirade came just hours before Mueller made filings about Cohen and Paul Manafort. Trump also alleged his lawyers are preparing a major counter-report to rebut Mueller's findings. That was news to his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, who said he hasn't had time to consider drafting a response plan. Giuliani helpfully added that he spent the summer answering Mueller's questions, describing it as a nightmare that took about three weeks to do what would normally take two days. In the first of two major court filings, federal prosecutors said that Paul Manafort told multiple discernible lies to the FBI and to the special counsel concerning five different matters. Manafort had signed a plea agreement. Manafort lied about his contact with administration officials and his interactions with Russians tied to Moscow's intelligence services. Federal prosecutors also said that Michael Cohen deserves a substantial prison term of about four years. Cohen repeatedly used his power and influence for deceptive ends and repeatedly declined to provide full information about the scope of any additional criminal conduct in which he may have engaged or had knowledge of. Mueller's filing on Cohen was softer, noting he had offered limited help. He also revealed that Cohen told him a well-connected Russian national offered Cohen political synergy with the Trump campaign in November 2015. 
Following these memos, Trump inexplicably tweeted, quote, totally clears the president, thank you. This is, of course, not even close to being true. CNN received a bomb threat and had to be evacuated after Trump attacked the media on Twitter as the enemy of the people again. Trump's all-caps fake news, the enemy of the people tweet was sent at 10.07 p.m. Shortly thereafter, CNN's New York office was evacuated. And Trump blamed Robert Mueller's investigation for his low approval rating, tweeting, without the phony Russia witch hunt, my approval rating would get 75% rather than the 50% just reported. Trump's actual approval rating is 38%. Day 688, December 8th. An undocumented maid came forward and said she had worked at the Trump National Golf Club, New Jersey since 2013 without papers. In addition, a manager connected her with another employee to obtain false documents to allow her to work there. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said the United States would suspend its obligations to the 1987 Treaty on Nuclear Force in 60 days unless Russia returns to compliance. In related news, Trump tweeted about an uncontrollable arms race with Russia and China, claiming the U.S. spends $716 billion a year. That number is false by a factor of at least four. Trump has already increased the size of the military budget over the objections of the Department of Defense. Former Attorney General William Barr was nominated to be the new Attorney General, replacing Jeff Sessions. Barr served as Attorney General under George H.W. Bush. He is considered to have an expansive view of presidential power. Former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said in an interview that an undisciplined Trump doesn't read briefing reports and repeatedly tries to do illegal things. Quote, so often the president would say, here's what I want to do and here's how I want to do it. And I have to say to him, Mr. President, I understand what you want to do, but you can't do it that way. It violates the law. Trump responding to a tweet calling Tillerson dumb as a rock and lazy as hell. Trump and the NRA apparently executed complimentary TV advertising strategies during the 2016 presidential election. While the NRA and Trump used different advertising firms, both were affiliated with a conservative media consulting firm called National Media, and both ad buys were also authored by the same person at National Media. That violates federal campaign finance laws. Day 689, December 9th. John Kelly is resigned as chief of staff by the end of the year in the coming days. But Trump's preferred replacement, Vice President Mike Pence's chief of staff, Nick Ayers, said he would not accept the role, claiming he was leaving to spend time with his family. Trump had spent weeks saying that Ayers would be the new chief of staff. Reports said that Trump faced an internal rebellion with many staffers saying they would quit if Ayers came on. Trump was described as, quote, being left at the altar. Republican senators are apparently shaken by the news that Michael Flynn met with Mueller's team 19 separate times. That is a signal that Mueller's probe is more serious they've been led to believe. Meanwhile, Trump's team is apparently banking on a so-called shrug shoulders strategy to deal with the Mueller fallout, betting that his supporters won't care or notice. Revealing the depth and breadth of contact by the Trump campaign with Russia, Mueller said that before and after taking office, 16 senior officials had contact with Russian agents and Trump and senior officials repeatedly lied about those contacts. The people who had contacts with Russians were Paul Manafort, Michael Cohen, Rick Gates, Michael Flynn, Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, George Papadopoulos, Carter Page, Jeff Sessions, J.D. Gordon, Roger Stone, Michael Caputo, Eric Prince, Avi Berkowitz, and Felix Sater. All the contacts offered to broker a meeting with Vladimir Putin. Day 690, December 10th. Mueller is now looking into activity made by the Trump Organization. Cohen said that the Trump Organization's CFO was involved in hush money payments made to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. Earlier in the day, Trump tweeted there is no smocking done, misspelling the word smoking. Trump also claimed the payments to Daniels and McDougal were, quote, a simple private transaction. 
the Justice Department thinks otherwise. They call it a fraud and a violation of federal law. A Russian gun rights activist is pointed to plead guilty to charges that she was working as an agent for the Kremlin in the United States. Maria Bettina was accused of working to push the Kremlin's agenda by forming bonds with the NRA and other right-wing figures. Bettina's case was not handled by the special counsel investigating Trump's links to Russia. Conspiracy theorist and author Jerome Corsi sued Robert Mueller, the Justice Department, the FBI, and the CIA for $350 million, claiming his Fourth Amendment rights were violated. In a rambling suit, Corsi claimed Mueller blackmailed him to lie as part of a coup d'etat and accused the CIA, FBI, and NSA of placing Corsi under illegal surveillance at the direction of Mueller and his, quote, partisan Democrat leftist and ethically and legally conflicted prosecutorial staff. And the USA joined Russia, Iran, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia in refusing to join the UN's global climate change statement. The statement said they disagreed with the substance of the report, and they also helpfully staged a pro-coal display at the conference in Poland. Day 691, December 11th. Trump vowed to shut down the government. Democrats refused his demand for $5 billion in funding for a border wall, saying he was, quote, proud to shut down the government for border security. That statement came during televised negotiations with Senator Chuck Schumer and Representative Nancy Pelosi. Outside the West Wing after the meeting, Schumer said Trump had thrown a temper tantrum over the wall, saying, quote, the president made clear he wants a shutdown. Pelosi added, Trump must have said the word wall 30 times. It's like a manhood thing with him, as if manhood could be associated with him, this wall thing. She added, it was a tinkle contest with a skunk. Trump asked for an enormous rollback of the Clean Water Act that would have eliminated protections for vast amounts of wetlands and thousands of miles of U.S. waterways. The proposal would change the EPA's definition of waters of the United States, limiting the type of waterways that fall under federal protection of major waterways, their tributaries, adjacent wetlands, and a few other categories. The acting administrator of the EPA, Andrew Wheeler, called the Obama-era WOTUS regulation a, quote, power grab. The move is just one of dozens of environmental regulations Trump has aimed to curtail or replace in an effort to boost fossil fuel production. Mitch McConnell relented and said the Senate would vote on a substantial criminal justice bill, teeing up a bipartisan policy achievement that has eluded lawmakers for years. Trump had endorsed the bill last month and urged Mitch McConnell in recent days to go for it. The bill would roll back some of the so-called tough-on-crime policies of the 80s and 90s that were failures. And the Supreme Court, over the objections of three conservative justices, declined to review whether states can cut off public Medicaid funding for Planned Parenthood. The decision means that Planned Parenthood can continue to receive Medicaid funding. And after being left at the altar by Nick Ayers, Trump asked his aides, quote, why wouldn't someone want one of the truly great and meaningful jobs in Washington? Trump later claimed to reporters that a lot of friends of mine want it and were in no rush. In fact, several candidates for the position have already publicly said they're out. Day 692, December 12th. In a situation with global ramifications, British Prime Minister Theresa May's government faces a no-confidence vote tonight. May is attempting to get an orderly Brexit deal passed. She does not have the votes. Should she lose a no-confidence vote, her government could fall. And that could deeply damage the economies of Britain and Europe. The Washington Post is reporting that Trump continues to reject assessments from the CIA. He apparently does not agree with intelligence services on Russian interference, Iran, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, the existence of climate change, and the murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Trump, however, has privately conceded that impeachment is a real possibility after prosecutors in New York linked him directly to campaign finance violations. However, Trump told reporters today, quote, it's hard to impeach somebody who hasn't done anything wrong and who's created the greatest economy in the history of our country. I'm not concerned. No, I think that the people would revolt if that happened. Trump, in fact, has not created the greatest economy in the history of the United States. 
In related news, one of the women paid off. Stephanie Clifford was ordered to pay $300,000 in legal fees to Trump after a defamation suit against Trump was tossed out. 71% of Americans disapprove of the way Trump is handling the Russian investigation. 58% of Americans believe that Russian investigation is urgent and necessary. 69% of Americans do not think building a wall on the border is an immediate priority. These are the Trump Diaries. Nancy Clem talked with Weishat Elvitra, a female illustrator and comic book artist. Elvitra discussed her Tongva heritage, Gamergate, and breaking into the famously insular comic book medium. Spontaneous Vegetation with Nancy Clem airs the second Sunday of every month at 5 p.m. I've been talking with Weishat Elvitra, mm-hmm. um, and she's here with us from California. She is a Tongva and Scottish illustrator, comic book artist. Yeah, and recently, um, you and your ongoing collaborator, Lee Francis, of Native Realities Press, received a stupendous grant from the Pew Charitable Trust. Congratulations. Wow. Thank you. Wow. And and your your proposal was, uh, that was accepted, was uh, to write and illustrate a graphic novel called Redrawing History, Indigenous Perspectives on Colonial America, which will also be widely distributed to tribal nations and hopefully made available to anyone. Um, It makes me wonder, have you, you know, with all this, uh, this rise in your work and the rise in these stories and these perspectives and uncovering of histories long buried um have you received pushback for your work you know i i can't say that i have um not at all actually uh i i have brought into the conversation um and i was recently on a podcast and they had asked me about tackling work that wasn't from my own tribe that was definitely a conversation but I haven't yet received any sort of pushback in that regard. Um, and it was kind of an interesting conversation to have because, you know, a lot of these projects aren't centered on West Coast tribal matters, um, for one. And mm-hmm. a lot of the time when I'm contacted for jobs, um, you know, they're outside my tribal range. Um, in, in regards to you know, tribal specificity. Um, but uh, I... So far, I've been lucky that people have been very accepting of my work, and I feel like when I take on projects, um, I really try to do as much research as humanly possible and really try to treat um, you know, the project with as much respect as I can possibly show it. Uh, and I, I, I treat everyone with you know, kids' clothes, like, because I know it's real people that are involved in these projects, and it's real identity and real generations of kids that are going to see this. And, you know, if it's done improperly, then that's really going to affect them when they get older. So I feel like there's a huge responsibility in taking on um, Native-based books um, and something that I take very seriously. So, so far I haven't received any pushback. And, you know, in the future, if I do, I, I will take that with a lot of respect because I think if they do have pushback and you know, they're willing to open up a dialogue with me about what it is that they have issue with. Um, 
hopefully we can have a conversation and, you know, work on those things for the better. Mm-hmm. I think, it, yeah, if they're open to dialoguing with you, that's the, that's the critical piece. <laughs> um, so I, I think in related, I was doing some reading on MMIW, or, um, which stands for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, which is a movement that I believe started in Canada. Is that correct? Uh, I believe so. I think it, it garnered attention there and has recently sort of spread as in regards to more awareness here in the United States. So MMIW um, was formed because four, to fi- four of the five Native women, girls, trans, and two-spirited people are affected by violence. And um, they've started a network and community-led database um, of these people that um, have been missing or murdered. Um, yeah. And uh, I was wondering what your personal or professional connection to this work is, because of uh, some of the um, more personal stories that you've profiled of of um, some Native women, they've been very, very strong, and um, they've been very strong leaders who have had to uh, really carve a space for themselves. Yeah. Um, the missing, murdered Indigenous women, it's something that I only became aware of within the past, I would say, maybe four years. Um, Before that, it was something that I wasn't aware of at all. Um, I knew that, you know, that there was violence on reservations and that there were, you know, issues with police violence in regards to Native people. Um, I had no clue that there was the statistics of women disappearing and being raped and murdered at the rate that there is. Um, And it, it shocked me, like, Mm-hmm. The fact that the governments of Canada and here in the United States, I mean, they are so behind Canada in their research and statistics that they don't even have any sort of statistic base here in the United States, despite having all the reservation systems and then even off reservations. Um, but the fact that they haven't even looked into it uh, is shocking in a way to me, but then half of me sort of expects it because it's, it's part of the... Um, you know, the destruction of Native people and the ongoing genocide. It hasn't stopped. It's still continuing. Um, and the fact that a lot of these rapes and murders are done by the hands of non-Native men, not saying that all are, because there are instances of Native men, you know, contributing to that. But in most cases, statistically, it has been at the hands of non-Native men. Um, and it ties into, you know, the oil worker field of the marine construction workers for these pipelines that they're putting in, where, yeah, it provides temporary jobs for a small amount of time, but it also brings in people that are being hired off the streets who are previous drug users who are, um, you know, they have a history of violence and they aren't background checked at all. Um, And a lot of those men are working in the oil field for these major oil companies, and adding to the problem because they're getting paid tons of money for what they're doing in regards to the construction. Um, and they spend it on booze and women and uh, 
in that there's um, drug use, there also comes alcoholism, prostitution, uh, child trafficking, mm-hmm. and a host of other you know issues that all contribute to the missing murdered indigenous women um, statistic now that we have. So it, it's a huge shocking problem that this can be going on in developed countries and that it isn't given more attention. Um, I mean, just recently there was a woman who was nine months pregnant and she was murdered while pregnant and her baby who luckily has survived um, the trauma was taken out of her mother and uh, you know she's just another number to the statistic and what was really sad is barely any news agencies covered this and if this would have been a white woman it would have been all over all the media nationwide like in a heartbeat and the fact that it was on local stations um, in regard to, you know, the murder and the trial and everything. And the fact that it wasn't given national attention is just absolutely shocking to me. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, uh, I, I did do one piece for the Dear Woman book and, you know, it, it had to do with sort of my, I guess, artistic reaction to what's going on in regards to um, the same murdered indigenous women through the education that I had gotten and um, that I wasn't aware of prior, so I, d- I did some research and I started looking into the issue and I'm like, wow, this is something that I really need to make a statement about. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty proud of that piece. I think it it did a lot of um, good in, in regards to being aware of the issue um, in a short, concise way. It's like a three-page sequential art piece. Um, and it, it was picked up by a, a traveling exhibition um, called Bring Her Home, which I think is currently traveling as well. And they're picking up artwork for a future exhibition, but it's to bring awareness to the MMIW um, and to travel around too, to provide not only awareness, but support for people that have experienced it within their family circles. Can you touch on Dear Woman because of this? Yeah, definitely. Dear Woman was another project that I sort of took on that was a learning experience. Um, Lee and Elizabeth were looking for a co-editor um, for an unnamed project, and I kind of threw my hat in the ring there, too, because I was interested in the back the back end of how a book's put together. Uh, for my own you know, knowledge, I, I was in journalism class in high school, and putting books and things together is really interesting to me, so I, I kind of nudged me a little bit. <laughs> like, I would really like, you know, the, the learning experience of this project if, you know, you're willing to give it to me. So it turned out to be the Dear Woman Anthology, um, and it was a project that Elizabeth had, I believe, run prior through a print run. Um, and Dear Woman is sort of a, an ongoing fixture in a variety of tribes uh, where they have a, a kind of female deer, I guess, figurehead. And she kind of plays different parts in different tribes, but she's a bit like uh, if you kind of stray off, you know, the path that you're supposed to be on in doing good things and uh, leading a good life, and that could be adultery, that could be violence, it could be drugs. <laughs> she kind of comes and will either lead you into, you know, the forest and take care of you, or <laughs> meaning like, you know, she might kill you. <laughs> the wrongdoings that you have done or um, you know she can also kind of like 
be a reminder of like, look, you're falling off this path, you need to get on it, otherwise there's ramifications for doing that. Um, and I think the Dear Woman Anthology kind of allows for so many various female perspectives in regards to uh, having a safe space to explore that type of um, empowerment in a way. Um, from from dealing with own personal stories, I mean, we've had some amazing contributors to that book. Uh, my my piece was in regards to the missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, some people took a, a stance in regards to um, like just adultery. There's there's a some that are very uh, theoretical kind of interpretations of her. Um, so it kind of it gives a, a variety of views of what dear woman kind of is within your own tribal stories or what it means to you that that notion of female empowerment through telling somebody that they're straying off their path that they should be on. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, and Hannah Larson. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen radio sting by Dan Jugal. Additional music from International Anthem Archive. Voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. Yeah.